because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, so we've got a, so many huge issues going on right now in the world. And the one I want to focus on uh, this week is the fuel and power crisis in Europe uh, and around the world. We're seeing it in China, but I think Europe is the, is the biggest case of it. And we're starting to see consequences in the US. We're seeing natural gas prices in particular go way up in Europe and have gone up significantly in the US after we were told for years, oh, natural gas is now going to be cheap uh, forever. And I thought a really good perspective on this would be to actually bring on the CEO of a natural gas producer, because my, my basic view about this, and we'll see if he agrees, but I think he will agree, is that the world has never had more ability to produce uh, energy and particularly to produce fuel and in particular natural gas, where we've just had these amazing revolutions over the past decade or two. And yet we're having these shortages. And my view is whatever else is going on, the fundamental is that we are not allowed to drill for and transport uh, oil and particularly natural gas to the best of our ability. And if we were, uh, we would not have these problems and the world would be a much, much uh, better place. But there's one thing hearing it from me, I thought it'd be really interesting to hear the perspective of somebody who's actually trying to produce this stuff for America and the world who's having success, uh, but is very limited by uh, government. So I'm going to bring on the CEO of the largest natural gas producer in the US, EQT. His name is Toby Rice, and I've talked to him in advance. So he has a lot of really interesting insights on this issue. So Toby, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, thanks, Alex. All right, so just give us a quick introduction of you, your background, and, and how you became the CEO of EQT. Yeah, um, it, it's been an un unconventional path to becoming the CEO of EQT. Uh, my career started back in 2007. I started a, a company called Rice Energy, uh, three brothers out of an apartment in Pittsburgh. Um, and, and our goal was to help lead the United States gain energy independence, which was a huge feat. Um, which is know, not in, back in, then considered very plausible. At it, all. It was, yeah, it was considered almost impossible. Um, that's how large of a goal this was, you know, through a lot of hard work, sleeping in trucks, um, you know, taking what, I, what I, we would consider to be pretty large risk, uh, we, were, we, were, we turned out to be very successful. Um, in, in, in less than 10 years, you know, we, had, we had grown from three brothers to over 570 employees. Um, you know, it was a public, we had two public companies, an upstream business and a midstream business. We outperformed our peers by 90% during our time as a public company. Uh, and you know, we, were, we, we, we also built a great culture and you know, we think that was the reason for one of the reasons for why we had such great success. Um, you know, 2017, we had an opportunity to to look at ways to create the next level of, of value creation for our shareholders. You know, we had gone through the identification of oppor an opportunity by doing the geology and mapping out the best areas to develop. Uh, we, we had gone through the land capture phase where been able to go out and lease 250,000 acres. Uh, present a lot of drilling opportunities for our company. Uh, we had gone through the, the technological uh, you know, evolution and, and cutting our well costs and, and increasing the productivity of our wells. But, you know, so we, we've gone through all those sort of key steps in value creation. And what we realized was that the next, for us to get that next level of value creation for our stakeholders, it was going to be about, you know, how we drill longer laterals. And so we're drilling around 8,000 foot laterals on average if we combined with our offset operator, it was, which was EQT at the time, um, that would be the key for us to drill 12,000 foot laterals. And, 
the impact there is, is an increase in about 30% of your returns when you can drill 12,000 foot laterals versus 8,000. So this is this is horizontal drilling, right? Horizontal. That, that's correct. And this is this was uh, happening in uh, Appalachia, focusing on the Marcellus and Utica shales. So we made a decision uh, back in 2017 to combine with EQT and, and that combination created the nation's largest natural gas producer. Um, you know, being big is, is, is not something that that is what you shoot for, but anytime you can do anything bigger than Exxon in, in the oil and gas industry, it's something to be, you know, just to, to recognize. Um, you know, we really set the company up for, for success. Unfortunately, it was about a, a year later, um, you know, there were some issues at the company and shareholders asked me to get back involved. Um, after looking at the situation, realized that it, it, this company required a total overhaul of the way that they operate. And I launched a proxy contest uh, with the Rice team. It was probably the worst nine months of my life. Very stressful. I, I had forgotten when I asked this question that you had a particularly dramatic uh, story. So yeah, I forgot about it was, that. It, it, was, it was not a fun time, but it, it, it was absolutely necessary. And um, you know, we, we, we took control of the board on July 10th, 2019. And, you know, for the last two years, it's been a pretty dramatic evolution of this business. Um, you know, what we've done has been, has been pretty remarkable. We, we've, we've attracted some of the best leadership uh, in, the, in the business to work at EQT. We've cut our costs. We've cut over $700 million of annualized costs out of this business, uh, completely transformed the way that we operate, minimizing the environmental impact, and um, you know, really generating some, some pretty healthy returns for our, for our stakeholders. And you know, it went from a very uncertain future to something that we're ex really excited about the future in front of us. So let's talk about, so I mean, obviously great to hear that you've had success with EQT, but let's talk about the success of the American natural gas industry more broadly, because I mean, just talk about, you know, what's happened in the last 15 years in terms of what our output was 15 years ago versus today. Because uh, it's just really shocking what's what's happened, and I think completely unexpected for almost everyone. Yeah, yeah, and this this is to me, I think, is one of the most impressive things about our country that really the general person has has no idea. Um, you know, think about you know back back in around two thousand is when we started to discover shales and that they could be a productive formation. The growth that we've had from shale. Um, has been tremendous. We were producing around five BCF a day of production from shale back in 2005. Today, so BCF is billion cubic feet, right? Yeah, and, and to put it in perspective, the United States today produces around 92 BCF. That's the entire U.S. gas market supply. And so, so it's just from five to over 90. It went from five BCF in shale to over 70 BCF coming from shale. I mean, think about that. Think about how how much how much energy supply that we've been able to to create. Um, that's brought a tre tremendous amount of abundance. Uh, it's, it's made energy low cost, and it, it was a, a real big driving factor in bringing back energy independence to the United States. Um, and and also it it also lowered emissions uh, significantly as we evolved from burning coal to using more natural gas. But you know what we what it took to get there, Alex, is I mean. These shale reservoirs, I mean, I think a lot of people think we, we you know, we, we get out there with a the drilling rig, we poke a hole in the ground and, and, you know, oil and gas comes shooting up. Uh, that's not the case. I mean, we are drilling in reservoirs now that have less porosity than pavement. We're fracking these wells with jet engines. 
Um, the technological innovation that this industry has brought, you know, rivals NASA. There, there's no doubt in my mind. You know, we can drill horizontal wells over 28,000 feet measured depth and hit a target the size of the smaller than a basketball court. Um, and, and doing all of this in a, in a, in a controlled, safe, uh, environmentally friendly way is one of the biggest um, American industrial uh, advancements that have been made in the last hundred years. And, so the, and it's a tremendous opportunity for us that we're that the United States has enjoyed um, to date. So just one comment about the porosity so people uh, get that. Like if you take shale rock, like I've got, you know, sometimes I'll visit companies and they'll give me a sample of the stuff. Like you have no idea because you would think, oh, maybe it's like a sponge, right? Where it just, oh, stuff like gas can flow right through it. But it, you mentioned it's, it's more like pavement or even less so. It just feels, it's just this slab of rock and you just think nothing it's just rock. Nothing could ever come of, out of this. And yet ingenuity makes so that oil and natural gas somehow come out of this cheaply enough where it's worth doing. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, you, you drill these wells that will, you know, these, these wells we're producing now will, will, will produce around, call anywhere from 20,000 units of gas in, in a day. Um, but you drill these wells into the shale horizontally and nothing happens. Uh, no, it's, it's, we, we don't unlock these reservoirs until we go out and, and do a hydraulic fra fracture operation. And, you know, we're putting, you know, water and sand and high pressure to create these fissures that will, will enable gas to flow. Um, and like I said, it, it's been a tremendous evolution from the horizontal drilling to the way that we complete these wells and doing it in an environmentally responsible way. Um, it, it's, it really is remarkable. So let's now talk about something that's that's not remarkable because you know when we when we've seen this over the past few years there's been an expectation that okay well it's going to continue like this and one you know you mentioned the increased quantity but just as notable and very related is the decreased price so we've had dramatically lower natural gas prices that contributes all things being equal to lower cost electricity certainly lower cost heating for homes lower cost heating for industry a lot of industry locating to the US because of newly low prices. And there was a certain kind of expectation that, well, this is going to continue indefinitely, like natural gas prices are going to be low indefinitely. Now, one counter to that is historically natural gas prices are very uh, volatile, much more so than, say, coal prices. Uh, but then you could also say, well, we have a technology now and a resource base now where we can expect it to be low. And I think that was reasonable except for the phenomenon of restriction of drilling and restriction of transportation. That's where I saw the volatility, not so much the issues that used to cause volatility. So, so with that in mind, what has been happening in the US and Europe in terms of prices over the past year and particularly in recent months? Yeah, so currently right now, we, we are dealing with an extreme price shock. And you know, as an energy executive, we do not like seeing the extreme prices. But I think, and so what you're seeing, how what what this is translated to from a pricing perspective, you know, in 2020, gas prices in the U.S. measured by you know uh, Henry Hub gas price averaged around two dollars and ten cents. And so in Europe right now, LNG prices are or are, are around thirty dollars. In Asia, this past weekend, LNG prices spiked to a hundred. Um, you know, this is and, and what this has done is this has caused uh, pricing in the United States to, to rise to over five dollars in MCF. And, and um, for Cal 22, the average price is around four dollars and 40 cents, significantly, 
significant increase in gas prices. Now, why has this happened? Uh, I think you look at some of the things that, that Europe has done. You know, one of the ways that they used to to get their 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 energy was from like UK was an example. They used to drill in the North Sea, and you know the the, the wells that they would drilling in the North Sea were actually sort of like their storage. Well, they stopped developing in the North Sea. And so now they're completely dependent on natural gas imports from LNG, as well as all their, their, their existing energy grids that they have, which you know, have, have made a significant move, increasing in the percentage of power that's generated from you know, wind and solar. And, and so you know, right now, because of an extreme weather event this summer, we had a very warm summer, they find themselves in a situation where gas storage in Europe is almost 20% below the five-year average. And what you're seeing now is, is a little bit of a panic um, to acquire the energy because if people don't have energy, you know, the consequences are dire. And so people are trying to stock up um, so that we can, so, so that they can withstand a, a cold winter. You know, at the end of the day, you, you look at this in, in, all of this could have been prevented. And I think that the United States, you know, us, you know, we can do more for the world and give the world the energy, you know, reliability that they need um, because that supply that we've had, you know, what we're running up to right now is, you know, we've done everything we could to grow, grow our supplies to address these needs. I mean, these, we, we really wanna be a solution here. Unfortunately, we're just out of infrastructure. And so, we have the biggest gas resource in the world here in Appalachia um, and EQT could do so much more, but without the infrastructure, without those, uh, without the infrastructure, you know, there, there's not much we can do to touch these people. And you know, what's really ironic, Alex, is I grew up in Massachusetts and, um, and, you know, Massachusetts is the, one of the few places in the, it's the only place in the United States that imports natural gas and, and, they, so they have an LNG import facility in Everett, Massachusetts. Those people are paying exposed to international LNG prices. So they're paying over $25 for their product where 300 miles away is natural gas from the largest shale, shale, shale basin in the world. Um, it just, it, in, but we're not able to build pipelines to get it there. And so instead they're, they're getting their gas from places like Russia and from you know, Trinidad and Tobago, which is over 2,500 miles away. Um, and these are some of the type, some of the really odd things that are happening in energy. And it's, you know, can all be solved with an investment in pipeline infrastructure and LNG export facilities. So talk about your company in particular, because you might, people might think, oh, well, we're producing so much shale gas now, maybe we're topped out. But my impression is there's almost unlimited amounts that we could be doing to supply both US, the US and the world. Yeah. I mean, right now, the amount of inventory that we have in the US is really just dependent on the price that we receive. You know, it's, it's tough to find, you know, we don't have a, a we have a, a very large inventory that can be economically produced at a dollar fifty to two dollar gas price, but when you when you get to three fifty three dollars three fifty four dollars, the amount of inventory that can actually be developed and generate a decent return for our shareholders, you know, multiplies almost exponentially. Mm -hmm. So if we said, uh, you know, if gas prices were long term were were four dollars and fifty cents, which by the way is the average price of gas over the last twenty years. Um, 
there is no concern that we would be able to power the world with American domestic natural gas um, and, and really insulate, you know, energy, energy, energy demand from, you know, extreme price shocks. But we need the tools to be able to do that. And that's that's pipelines and, and LNG export facilities. So let's now, so this might be a surprise to some people because of course we have these enormous uh, infrastructure proposals. And so everyone talks about infrastructure and we care about infrastructure. We'll talk about the proposals in a minute, but what's been happening to pipeline infrastructure and the, and the permission to build it over the past 15 years as we have increased our ability to, to drill for it and, and also to export it using LNG? Yeah, pipeline infrastructure in the US, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, you can you can see just recently, uh, a few days ago, um, canceling the Penn East pipeline project that was going to take gas from northeastern Pennsylvania down to New Jersey. Um, you know, there was Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which was a, a pipeline from you know southwestern Pennsylvania taking gas into Virginia Carolinas. That was a, a B and a, half, a B and a half of pipeline capacity canceled. Um, you've got Constitution, which would take gas from northeast to New York canceled. Um, and, and the one pipeline that's, that's coming out of, um, Appalachia is that's still going is, is MVP mountain Valley pipeline over 95% complete. And, you know, but the challenges from that pipeline infrastructure have been tremendous. Um, that was a project that was originally slated to cost around $3 billion. They're projected to be spending over $6 billion to complete that pipeline. Um, you know, you're in a situation today um, where I think it's it's very hard pressed for, you know, very hard pressed for companies to be incentivized to go out and develop this this large scale infrastructure that this country needs, this world needs, um, because of the regular regulatory uncertainty and just the pressure we get from you know anti keeping it anti fossil fuel keeping in the ground um, groups that are out there. So what's what's been the rationale of all of these restrictions on on pipeline building? Because and I guess one point that people should get is you know natural gas is amazing, but it does have the challenge of it is a gas, so it's not super easy to like it's harder to move around than oil. It has less ability. To, like if you know you restrict an oil pipeline, that's terrible, but you can move it around via train. You can move it around via truck. It's not as safe. Uh, more likely to have accidents, you know, it's more expensive, but you can still do it. Coal, kind of similar, uh, you know, you can more easily move it overseas. You know, natural gas is amazing. It's clean burning. You have a huge amount of it, et cetera, but it is a gas. So you really, really need pipelines to move natural gas. So with, with that in mind, what have been the main arguments that these groups are using to restrict these gas pipelines? Well, I think that the, the one concern is just the environmental impact. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think the, the good news about the oil and gas industry is our impact to the environment is very well known from, um, you know, hydraulic fracturing that has been thoroughly vetted, scrutinized. And, you know, EPA came out with a report under Obama um, that, that said hydraulic fracturing is safe. There's no impact to drinking water. And, and that was, you know, the first tool that that environmentalists were looking at to, to mitigate the production of hydrocarbons, you know, they've just moved on to the next tool, which is pipelines. Um, and what's really unfortunate is, you know, when you, when, when you look at what happened um, with the, the pipeline 
for oil uh, when Biden got in, um, you know, canceling that. But that oil is still going to move. It's just going to be moving through people's towns, you know, on trains and trucks, uh, which which are is not as safe as, as what you can get with a pipeline. Um, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I think people are being pretty, pretty blunt about it. Um, now it's it's not you know going after the tools. It's really clear that that people are looking just to um, you know stop the use of fossil fuels. But I think um, these types of situations that are out there um, just remind people that this is the way this world has been built. This has been over 150 years of reliance on this energy source because it is the most abundant. It's the most. It's the cheapest. And it's the most reliable form of energy and people's lives depend on this. And, um, you know, I, I think when, when, when I, the reason I'm in this industry, Alex is, is because I could have done a lot of different things. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, I totally agree with your book, the moral case for fossil fuels. You know, when I getting back involved with energy and, and taking this role at EQT for me was about making an impact on the world. And this is where we share, you know, we share this with, with the environmentalists. I think we all want to make the world a better place. So we agree on that. How we do it is a little bit different. Um, I recognize that energy consumption is the, the driving factor behind human progress and human flourishing. And, and, you know, my role in this world is to help promote energy consumption and drive human progress around the world. That means hydraulic fracturing. That means shale development. That means building pipelines. That means, you know, feeding LNG facilities that will feed the world with the energy that they need to live productive, valuable lives. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, particularly because, you know, you mentioned you had a lot of success with your original business. It's not like you had a financial need to run another gas company. And for people who don't know, not that I know this firsthand, but it's not like an easy job to do in any way, including the different kinds of attacks that you get. So I think people have this idea that like oil and gas executives are doing this because it's just this amazing paycheck and you just get to be on top of the world. Like most of the people I know could have retired long ago, uh, but they choose not to because they love the work. And also they really have this conviction that it's crucial to the, uh, to the world now more than ever. Uh, 100%. I mean, Alex, I pay myself a dollar a year. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we do this, we, we really do believe in the higher purpose, you know, so much in, in ESG over the past, you know, two years has been focused on the environment, on the environmental side. And, you know, we're now able to showcase all the great work that we're doing there, you know, producing energy here domestically in the United States. It, it, we're doing it at one tenth of the emissions intensity that you'd get from places internationally like China or Russia. Um, so if you're going to produce energy, do it here. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the part that we should really need to be talking about is the S, the social, you know, the good work that we're doing on the world. And, you know, you're, you're a big champion for us by talking about the pros of energy use. Um, and I think when, if people really understood energy, I think they would look and see that we can have both things. We can have a cleaner environment and expand our, our use of energy to, to drive human progress in the world. You know, United States is a great case study of that. Um, you know, leveraging natural gas, you know, we, we increased our, our share of electricity generation by natural gas by over 20% um, while reducing our emissions as a country by 25% over the last 10 years. So um, it, this isn't a situation where I think you have to pick one side or the other. We can do both, um, but it, it, we, we need to have a realistic uh, perspective and, and, and awareness that 
we've done things, we've proven it here in the United States that we can do both. And I think that that's something that we hope, you know, we can champion, you know, just people recognizing that. Yeah. So I have a, a little bit of a different perspective. I mean, if you, so if you talk about doing both, I mean, I've, I'm on record, I'm not asking you to agree because for many reasons, but like, you know, I'm a different position. I, I very much uh, oppose the current ESG movement, not because I'm against a good environment or a good society, but because I think it's based on conceptions of those that I disagree with. And let's focus on environment. So you say that like everyone can unite around it, like us and the environmentalists. Well, I think it depends what category of environmentalists, because there's a question when you're talking about environment, is our goal a livable environment for humans or is it an unimpacted environment? And I think much of modern environmentalism is really about an unimpacted environment. And sometimes people want both. And really what natural gas and other things are doing is it's making the world more livable. And so part of that is, yeah, you want to be as clean burning as you can be. You want to generate as few negative side effects as you can. But the key thing is we actually need to produce a lot of stuff to have a livable environment. Nature is not a livable environment for 1 billion people, let alone 8 billion people. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing that reality where if you cannot produce enough energy for the winter, people are going to freeze to death. You know, you've seen these stories that like in Great Britain, people like just spending all day in the library, spending all day on a bus, burning old books. Literally, this happens now. I mean, because they cannot afford tea therms. I mean, people being found in their homes frozen solid like a block of ice. All this has happened just in the UK, not even this year. I mean, a livable environment requires massive amounts of production, which means massive amounts uh, of energy. So my perspective is like, yeah, I, I care about environment, but in a holistic sense, not just, oh, let's not contaminate it, but let's produce um, a really good environment. Let me, let me ask from this perspective, ESG. So how is, how is the ESG, even if you think, okay, its aims are more noble than I think they are, uh, how is it affecting um, your ability to transport natural gas? Because from what I've seen, they're not very enthusiastic about pipeline infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ESG movement, you, you've seen capital um, pull away from investing in energy, uh, whether that's investing in upstream businesses or, or midstream infrastructure projects. So it, it's definitely made things a, a lot more challenging for, for companies to raise capital to continue to do the great work that we do. Um, fortunately, this is the most innovative industry in the world. And we've been able just over this last year to make significant strides, gain significant efficiencies. So fortunately, this industry is, is able to do more with less. You know, for, for us at EQT, that was pulling $700 million of annualized costs out of our business. Guess what? Other people in industry have, have made, you know, significant strides there as well. Um, that's what allowed. That's what's allowed us to continue to generate profits even at lower gas prices. Um, and, and but you know, it's it's definitely made made it a lot more challenging to to find investments uh, investors for for large projects. The um, the one one thing I would say about ESG is you know when when we think about energy, you know, what is the future of energy? And I do think that ESG has has brought some clarity to what the future of energy is. And I, I think the future of energy is going to be the energy source that is the uh, most reliable, the cheapest, and the greenest. And when you look at, when you look at energy through that lens, um, you know, natural gas is the clear winner. Um, but, you know, at EQT, we, we, wanted, we, we think about how can we make our, our business, the energy that we produce, 
uh, aligned with the energy of the future? How can we be? How can we be greener? How can we be cheaper? How can we be become more more reliable? And for us, from the green side of things, this is all about cutting, eliminating our scope one and scope two emissions. But that's where we draw the line. Um, and we're going to be net zero by 2025. So think about this: America's largest natural gas producer is going to be net zero in less than three and a half years. But you know, going over into scope three, which is what happens to the product with our customers, you know, this is something that you know we are not going to be focusing on pushing down scope three because we realize that the use of our product is life giving and the key to human progress, and and, and we want to we want to champion that and not shy away from that. But scope one and two, that's all about doing things, you know, less pollution, and and fortunately. You know, we've got a really great starting point here being one of the, the top, uh, most efficient, cleanest operators in the U.S. Okay, well, if, if you're so scope one and scope two, like this is the thing. So the scope, th- the, these are kind of insider terminology, but the key yeah. thing is, so I mean, my view of ESG, and I'm not going to ask you to respond to it because you've got shareholders and this kind of thing. So I'm just going to say what I think and listeners can think. Um, but like, if you look at the actual emissions from using oil, for example, or using natural gas, we'll take it. So there's what's involved, the emissions involved in producing the stuff than in consuming the stuff. And what the ESG movement has said is, okay, let's just start off with what's involved in producing it, which is the scope one and scope two. Like, let's be cleaner there. We can control you directly there. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, but what, the point that gets brought up, so for instance, just to take a different company, you know, there are other companies that'll say like, okay, we're in, in, we're injecting CO2 into the ground to develop our oil, like Occidental or Oxy has been very prominent in this. Uh, but then the response is going to be, well, okay, but you're doing that in order so that more people can burn fossil fuels. So if you put CO2 into the ground for enhanced oil recovery, right, what's going to happen is you are going to produce more oil. And so that's going to be, so my analogy to this, which is, I think, pretty funny, is it's like saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to sell even more cigarettes, but nobody at our company is going to smoke. Like, mm-hmm. that's the view. It's like, oh, CO emissions are like smoking. And so it's like, oh, yeah, well, R.J. Reynolds, we're not going to have any smokers at R.J. Reynolds, but we're going to sell even more cigarettes via these efficient things. So I'm... I would say I'm glad that you're not, I mean, scope three is like, that's where the real battle is. So I'm glad you're not um, uh, conceding that, but I, I think that is that is the core battle. Let me, let me switch topics. I, I wanna hear from you, how does it feel to be in this position where like, you know that there's all of this damage that's happening right now in the US and particularly in Europe. And we know it's gonna get far worse because it's winter and despite what everyone says, cold is far more dangerous than heat in the world. And so you're talking about people freezing to death. You're talking about factories shutting down. That's already happening. Talking about all these crises. I mean, how does it feel to know that you could prevent that if we were allowed to build infrastructure and yet you can't do it because we're not allowed to build infrastructure? Yeah, it feels terrible, Alex. Um, You know, because we know what this industry can do um, if we were allowed to have that type of infrastructure you know, all of these, all of these, these hardships that people are going through right now, um, not even the, 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 the deaths are, 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 are terrible, um, but so many more struggles being created from unexpectedly high energy bills. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's really disappointing because we know that we've got the tools to be able to make it happen. I mean, this industry right now in, in, you know, 
has come through a pretty big, I'd say not, not a recession, but we've pulled back significantly. You know, this industry is, is running 500 rigs right now um, compared to the 2000 rigs we were running at a peak a, a while back. Um, this industry has so much more potential to, to go beyond what we've done with bringing energy independence to the United States and, and go beyond that and bring energy independence and, and energy security to other people of the world. And, and it's been the application of, it started with hydraulic fracturing and shales and the exploration and discovery there. And now it, the next wave of this industry is going to be on LNG facilities and, and, and uh, pipeline infrastructure that will connect the supply like the Marcella shale in, in the Northeast to these LNG facilities so that we can share the benefits of natural gas with the world. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, that's probably the thing that, that makes you, that's the toughest to, to consider because it's not like we're sitting here and saying, how could we prevent this? What's the solution? We need to bet on innovation or we need to bet on this new technology, let this develop. No, the answer is right here. It's what we've done in the United States and we've got so much more potential to, to make an even bigger impact on the world. And, and that's the really challenging part because we know what to do. Um, you, we're just not able, we're not, we're not being able to be unleashed to help on a world stage. So let's now just connect this to what's happening now because we're recording this on October 4th. Uh, infrastructure is one of the words of the day. We're talking about a billion dollar infrastructure and then a three point, oh, billion, I wish. Uh, maybe I don't wish, but like a trillion dollar infrastructure and then a 3.5 trillion, what they call a human infrastructure thing. And this is all being debated. Uh, how much attention, if any, is, is this issue of pipelines getting? Like, is there any provision in this infrastructure to have more pipeline or is there hostility toward pipeline? Yeah, certainly um, not clearly spelled out how much is going to be going for, for uh midstream pipeline infrastructure servicing the upstream business. There's a lot of talk on hydrogen, which is, which is neat because, you know, hydrogen is a, is typically made used from, uh, from natural gas. Um, so you'd think that common sense, if people want to bet on the hydrogen economy, you're going to need to make sure you, you build the infrastructure to make a uh, robust, you know, natural gas um, industry to, to support that. But, you know, the, the things that we see, and some of these policies here is, you know, we just want to see a, a fair, uh, a fair market and a connected market. You know, I think you look at the basis differentials all across the country as examples of how connected is this market here in the United States. And, you know, as an example up here in, in, in Appalachia, you know, basis differentials are anywhere from 75 cents to a dollar 20 currently at 90 cents today. So just explain what a basis differential is. That's, so that, yeah, that's the, that's the discount. That's the price. That's the discount to the Henry hub price. So when we talk about NYMEX price of, of currently over $5, um, you know, we're not getting $5 up here in, in Appalachia, we're getting $5 minus the differential. And so um, that, that should be, that differential should be, you know, around 45 to 50 cents. Um, the reason it's higher than that is just a sign that there's not enough infrastructure built up here. Um, and, and so I think you can see that across all different parts of the country as a sign for to have that clearly we need to have more infrastructure built in the United States. Um, and then the other part is just from a, you know, a, a fair market, you know, the, the, some of the other policies that just give us some concern, you know, prioritizing um, other forms of other sources of energy, you know, namely renewable, 
um, is 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 one of the things that would cause you know the the demand for you know reliable clean burning natural gas um, to not be able to to have as big of an impact as as it should. Yeah, it's really you know just think about infrastructure. And I should add, you know, we're talking about spending our money on infrastructure, but when when you guys are building infrastructure, this is stuff that you want to finance, right? This is not this is not like oh you're going to tax us a trillion dollars, which is by the way people don't know that's seventy seven hundred dollars a household, like to pay for this. This is you want to just be free to build the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know the nobody subsidized the oil and gas industry. I mean, this was something that was was you know. We we this growth that we've seen in the United States, you know, the you know, going from five BCF of shale gas production to over seventy BCF a day of shale gas production today, um, in a ninety BCF a day U.S. U.S. supply, you know, we that was financed through, you know, uh, private investments, and, and didn't require government subsidies. You know, the the government did help in in doing some research early on, but the the reason for our success in this industry has been the entrepreneurial mindset, the, the tremendous, you know, technological innovators that we have, that we still have today in this industry that have driven the success. So it's, it's really a, um, you know, an independent industry that doesn't require the government um, to help. But, you know, what we would like is to, to have uh, more help from, from the government on putting in this infrastructure. So, you know, we're not asking for, the, the, we're not asking for the checkbook to help us become more successful. Um, we're not asking for the pen uh, for, for legislators to, to change bills. Uh, we're looking for, for leaders to use their microphone and use their platform to, to look at all the great work that we've done in this industry, changing the world, um, changing, giving energy independence to the United States, and, and just use that microphone to celebrate those things so that we continue to, to do more. Because, you know, Alex, I mean, look at what's going on in, in Europe and Asia right now. Um, and, and all of these are just a sign that the United States um, is not doing enough to, to meet the world needs. Yeah, I mean, nor, nor we should say is Europe. I mean, Europe has a lot of these pressures much worse. So they have, you know, they have enormous potential to do shale oil and shale gas there that's being suppressed there. And, you know, one thing we should mention with the renewables or I don't call them renewables, I call them unreliables, but let's just say with solar and wind, is that the more you use that, the more dependent you are on the flexibility of natural gas. One of the nice things about natural gas is it has this incredible ability to cycle up and down uh, as needed. So what, what's really scary to me is you have this insistence on wind and solar, which I think itself is problematic, but then a non-recognition that you absolutely need rock solid natural gas. Uh, availability. And that's, I think we saw that in Texas, like not enough concern for that. And we're seeing it other places. Like if you're dealing with something as, as well, as, as difficult to deal with as natural gas in terms of how to, it needs transportation and needs huge transportation ability. Like you are really killing people. If you're saying we want wind and solar, and we're going to also restrict natural gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, when you just come back to like energy of the future, it's, it's cheap, reliable and green. And you know, I think a lot of a lot of talk and emphasis has been put on how um, how much solar and wind has come down the cost curve, but you know it, it's not the same product because of the intermittency of you know of, of wind and, and solar. You know, um, sunshine is free, but solar is not. And you know, when we look at the cost, 
I almost like I tell people the cost comparison because we get this quote a lot, you know, solar and wind are, are as cheap as, as, as natural gas. And I just say, listen, you know, you've got, if you think it's the cheapest, let me just sell you this car. You want to buy a car. Um, both cars are the same price. One car will run 24 seven. Whenever you want to drive somewhere, you can drive. The other car is only going to drive when the, is only going to drive when the sun's out or the, or the wind's blowing. Um, which car are you going to buy? They're, it's the same cost. And now, and, and, and the, the proposition now is, well, if we, if we can build batteries and, and do energy storage, which are, which take the cost of that car, um, four times the expense. Now the price tag is four times larger than, than the, the traditional car. Um, it, it's, it's obvious that, you know, that's what it would take to make a comparable product. Um, and I mean, forget about the supply chain that's involved with, with batteries. So, you know, one of the really neat things about natural gas here is not only is it, is it the greenest, most reliable and cheapest, it's also the, the product that's made in the USA and all the benefits that we get from that as well. I like the, the car analogy. And just one thing to think about with the car analogy is you wouldn't even be comfortable buying three of those cars, right? In terms of reliability, like you wouldn't be comfortable that you're going to get to where you need to go. And even if you could map them to like one somehow is going to use California sunshine and one is going to use Midwest and one is going to use Appalachia, like still you would yeah. like even three of them would. And that's, that's what actually happens. And so in practice, as I mentioned, like what all these things totally rely on is natural gas and like the ability to rapidly put natural gas up and down. And you saw this in Texas when the wind died down, when it got cold, and this was before any turbines froze. There's too much focus on turbines freezing, but even before that happened, just wind doesn't blow much usually when it's really cold. And you saw this massive increase in the need for natural gas and people complained and got upset because natural gas only increased by 400% during yeah. that situation. And, and there were failures, they wanted to do more, but that just shows how reliant that system is on natural gas because they know that the wind and solar can, can almost always go near zero. And, and the defense, which I, I found crazy, but the defense of this was, oh, well, we knew that wind and solar wouldn't work very well in this situation. But then you're saying, oh, let's rely on it and let's not have like incredible rock solid natural gas supply. So my, my, my view is it's, it's, there's not a sense, unfortunately, there's not a sincere interest in energy some of it is ignorance, but I think among the thought leaders, it's it's hostility uh, toward energy for various reasons. But it's really scary to see. So um, it's it's great that you're speaking up. Any any final messages for the public or for our elected officials who are currently talking about infrastructure and yet, in my view, not not just they don't need to pay for anything. Not just lib they're not liberating the most important form of infrastructure, which is energy infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think one thing I, I'd want to just make sure I'm, I'm, I'll get out there is listen. We're, we're I'm I'm not against solar and wind. I think that they are a tool in the toolbox that we should use to, to make up a piece of our grid. Um, you know, but our grid needs to be balanced. We need to balance you know cost, reliable, and and green, and moving in one way or the other. You know, all green. It's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be reliable. And so there there does need to be a balance and. Um, I, I think that's really, really important for people to keep in, in mind um, because in, in deploying the practical solutions, I mean, one of the really interesting things, Alex, that I think is a, a really big opportunity in front of us today um, is if we can 
expand gas production in the United States by 20 BCF a day, which say, well, that sounds like a lot it is, but when you compare it to the fact that we've grown gas supply in shale by over 65 BCF a day in the last 15 years, 20 BCF a day is, is relatively simple for us to be able to do that. Um, if we can do that, then you know the prize there obviously is gonna, is gonna be able to alleviate these extreme situations that the world is dealing with today. Um, and also from an environmental perspective, it's gonna, that, that would eliminate over 370 million tons of CO2 emissions per year. If you just assume that the natural gas we put into the market is gonna be retiring coal, you know, 370 million tons, just to make that relative to you, that's about the emissions from France. Um, 370 million tons would be over nine times the total amount of carbon capture projects that are taking place in the world today. So, you know, that's a really huge opportunity. And, you know, for, for policymakers that are listening, you know, if you want to be a leader on the world stage, you know, lead by example. Um, and, and we can certainly continue to add, you know, solar and wind, you know, while keeping in mind the reliability that we need in our grid. But you really want to be a leader, leverage your resources, um, leverage the American innovation ingenuity, leverage, you know, this workforce that we have that's running sort of at half speed and share the benefits with what with, with an American made product on the world. That's that I think is a really we have a really tremendous opportunity to lead here. And, and all we're saying that we need that we need to unleash U.S. shale is pipeline infrastructure and energy facilities. And and uh, with that, I think we can we can make a, a pretty big push to, to meeting the energy demands of the world while respecting the environmental concerns that, that, that some people have as well. All right. Well, and I just want to emphasize it's again, permission to build this stuff. It's not, it's not again, subsidies or handouts and that. And I would just say like, I'm totally enthusiastic about expanding this stuff uh, where we may differ and people can read fossil future and you can read fossil future to see if you agree with me. It's just, I think the world needs vastly more energy. So I don't see it as, oh, we should be replacing coal. I see it as only 1.5 billion people in the world use even a third as much electricity as the average American. Over 3 billion people use the, you know, the same amount of electricity per person or less than an American refrigerator. And 3 mm -hmm. billion people are in between. So like my view is the world needs more energy. Really grateful to the American natural gas industry for innovating in this space and grateful uh, to you for coming on. I think it's going to be really inspiring to people to hear what's possible. And I think it's also going to be really upsetting to people to hear what's being restrained. So hopefully we can make an impact. And uh, yeah, thanks again for joining me, Toby. Hey, thanks, Alex. All right. Thanks again to Toby Rice for uh, joining me. So I thought it was really great to have the CEO's perspective on sort of what, like what's happening in the world, what can be done, uh, what needs to be done, and just how tragic it is that we have this incredible ability and it's it's being restricted. So I hope you enjoyed that. As you saw, there were different points of uh, agreement and, and disagreement. So definitely like ESG people don't, don't attribute all of my views to him, don't attribute all of his views to me. But I think the core thing he's expressing is crucially important. And so I was really glad to get him uh, on. Uh, if you want some of my views on ESG, check out energytalkingpoints.com. I talk a bit about the ESG. If you just search ESG there, uh, you'll see that. And then I also have my positive alternative to ESG, which I call LCV, long-term uh, value creation. All right. Speaking of that, make sure to check out energytalkingpoints.com and get on my mailing list. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And uh, yeah, once again, 
energytalkingpoints.com you can get on my newsletter you can also get on that at alexepsteinlist.com i'm posting a lot still on twitter so make sure to follow me there at twitter.com slash alexepstein and if you want to support our research and development and promotional efforts which are going to continue to be really big as fossil future launches as we have these huge domestic issues and international issues in October, November, November is the big UN climate conference. You can become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back in two weeks, probably uh, with another great guest. Uh, it'll either be me or a great guest. It won't be a mediocre guest. I can promise you that. Uh, until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.